Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Too often, you know, slavery is taught as the history of black people and not as the history of white people. And I think that is what we need to think about rage is that, you know, you need to think about rage as the history of white rage. And what I was trying to accomplish is to speak in the intimate places where we are angry. Talking about rage, you know, as a theologian, to offer ways of embracing our anger in ways that does not have to diminish our humanity and our terrible right to live. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dante Stewart. He's a writer and speaker whose voice has been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Sojourners, The Witness, A Black Christian Collective, Comment Magazine, and more. As an up-and-coming voice, he writes and speaks into the areas of race, religion, and politics. Today, we're speaking about his recent book, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. Dante Stewart, welcome to Things Not Seen. Yo, David, so good to be with you, brother. So good to be with you. Thank you. I want to start the conversation in a moment that you talk about in your book, Shouting in the Fire. You have been working as an intern at a mega church in South Carolina, a church that is mostly white people. And you are given the opportunity to preach in this church, and you've prepared, you've even bought a new suit, you say, and you're getting ready to preach, and you get there to the pulpit, and you're standing, and you're looking at the congregation, and I was very struck by what you wrote next in your book, Shouting in the Fire. You said, and then I realized I wasn't home, and I just want to start there because I want to think about that moment with you and help me and help my listeners to understand what it was like to come to that moment and then to have that be what came through your head. Oh, yeah. Wonderful question. Actually, just a minor correction. It was actually in Augusta, Georgia. And I wouldn't even consider it a mega church. It was a nice sized church or whatnot. But the way people talk about churches is always subjective and things like that. But, you know, leading up into that moment, which in this moment was really, you know, post Alton Sterling, post Fernando Castile. And as uh, the wonderful writer Deshaun calls it the belly of the beast. It was in the belly of the beast in the midst of this kind of Trump moment that that was happening. And so much of what was taking place was me, you know, you know, being a, a transactional person. You know, I'm, I'm not the hero of this story. So I'm not going to say as if when I entered the pulpit in that moment that I was entering uh, the pulpit as a hero. I was entering the pulpit as a young, black, charismatic and confused person. 
um, somebody who grew up Black Pentecostal in rural South Carolina, as I write about with so much of my world, the feel, the taste, the smells of my world, uh, was so much of the world that Black people built and created and sustained, whether that was through storytelling with my grandmother uh, and my aunts and uncles and my mother and my father, or whether it was the world that was built and, and, and I was immersed in and in my Pentecostal churches was speaking in tongues and laying on of hands and, and falling out on the floor to going to Clemson University. Um, and then now, years later, finding myself deeply immersed in a white evangelical church. And in some sense, while I was there, you know, I wanted to be there. So I wasn't somebody who was, you know, confused about my own presence there. But I was somebody who was very much deeply invested in that space, which I would deem to be white social space, that many of us young black athletes find ourselves in when we go and play at predominantly white universities. And so I'm there trying to make sense at this moment now, and as I think back at it, trying to make sense of what am I, that this is really the first moment that, that I really critically asked that question. You know, what am I doing here? Like, you know, this is not home to me. I had made it my home and it became my home. Even when my wife went through things where she was like, yo, nah, this ain't the place for us. And, and even other friends, it's like, you know, the place ain't, ain't the place for us. You know, we stayed there because, you know, there were other black people in the space. And, you know, when we are black and predominantly white spaces, oftentimes we stay there, not simply because we love the space, but because we don't want to leave black people alone. And I'm, I'm reminded of the theologian, Benita Weems, when she was asked the question, why don't you give up the Bible? You know, why don't you give up Christians? And, and she responded, because there are so many black women who are in this story that I want to be free, that I don't want to leave behind. And so I'm reminded of that, that, that part of it was not wanting to leave them behind, but also home became so unfamiliar because it was not a place that was built for me, but it was a place that I performed in and that rewarded me for that performance. But I didn't really ask the question that I should have been asking, who benefits from this performance and what does it cost me in the end? Uh, yeah, and so it then became very unfamiliar. I want to linger on some of the things that you said. You talked about being in the belly of the beast. That's a, that's a strong phrase. But then you said that you were invested in that space and being in that space. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Why were you invested in that space? You, you mentioned Renita Weems' type of in investment where she said, I'm staying here because of all the black women that I want to see get free. That's one type of investment. I got the sense from what you were saying that there, there was a different type of investment in your experience at that moment than what Renita Weems was talking about, but maybe I misheard you. So you tell me kind of no, what you're No, 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 yeah, 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's part of what I write about, especially, you know, when I was at Clemson University and in those early chapters, when I was talking about being a young black athlete at Clemson where... So often we receive this message and I talk about this story was already written for us. We're just performers in it. And oftentimes, you know, when we're younger, growing up in the place that I grew up in, the Black rural South, so many of the kind of messages that we receive, we receive is that, you know, in order for you to make it, then you need to have proximity to white people. You know, you need to have white acclaim and white protection and, and white rewards and white resources. And so many of us, you know, instead of, Thinking about, you know, hey, let's consider going to HBCU uh, and things like that. Many of us associate making it and success with what white people possess and our ability to be as close as possible to that possession and benefit from it. And, you know, when I went to Clemson, you know, and played football there and, and got involved in FCA, 
so much of the way I named, thought about the world and acted within the world look less familiar than my home and the ways that my parents and grandparents and the other uh, saints that were around the Pentecostal church, the type of awareness, the consciousness that I was raised in as my mom and my dad, you know, they raised us as religious black folk coming of age in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And coming of age in those moments presented a particular type of consciousness for black people. You know, whether you're talking about our art and the dance and the way we wore our hair, the way we, you know, did things, the decisions that we made, it wasn't perfect, but it was powerful. And I think, you know, what, what tend to happen is, no, my investment was not like that of Renita Weems and many of the Black women who want to see Black people whole and in love and free, loose from the bounds of what uh, Bell Hooks called the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. You know, you say that in somewhere, you know, you're going to sound like you know something uh, or whatnot. Uh, she wanted us, you know, as many Black women want us free from that. I wasn't invested in that way. I was invested more in a way that, you know, I think that for so many other young black people to, to make it, to be, to have success, to be free. We think that, you know, being closer to white people is being closer to God, being closer to white people is being closer to success, being closer to white people is being closer to many of the things that will make us feel like we matter and, and that we can make it or whatnot. And yeah, so much of my investment was that way. And in some sense, I'm also thinking about the ways in which, you know, like, like trauma and, and so many feelings of pain and to compensate for that trauma, we run. And so running is a metaphor that is used in my book a lot. The ways that I ran for myself, you know, and my failures, the ways, ways that I ran from Blackness, the ways that I ran to white people to, to compensate and to cope with many of the ways either that I was afraid or insecure or even arrogant. And I think, you know, it, it allowed me being close to white people. It allowed me to run without actually dealing with myself because me being close to them made them feel like they were more loving and less racist. And they rewarded me for being able to call out certain preacher names while being charismatic. And you know, there's something about young black dudes in these spaces, young black charismatic dudes in these spaces that become incredibly marketable. And that, you know, we don't really think, ask critically about, you know, what are we giving up? in order to exist. And I think oftentimes we, we, we give up our humanity and we sacrifice our wholeness at the altar of white acceptance. And I think that's probably the beginnings of the ways I'll think about that part of my story. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dante Stewart. He's a writer and speaker whose voice has been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, and other publications. We're talking about his recent book, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. You were just talking about running and how running becomes a metaphor in the book. And you, we've also talked about the structure of the book, where early in the book, you're talking about running from your blackness, your identity, your place in that community, and running towards a kind of whiteness and white power and white protection. And then the second half of the book is largely the reverse of that, running, oh, yes. running from and running towards blackness and running towards an embrace of an identity. But as you were talking about all this, one of the names that keeps coming up is James Baldwin. And oh, yes. You, and you really have resonated with James Baldwin as you yourself have been trying to find your voice and figuring out what you're running to. And so as we're setting the stage for the conversation, talk to us a little bit about how James Baldwin has factored into where you're running to now. Wonderful. 
very, very perceptive reading of my text. That was very intentional. Just a kind of preliminary statement before I even get into that question about Baldwin. You know, I wanted to write my text in such a way that it would make it very hard to consider my text simply an anti-racist text and a sense of a text that's simply written, you know, to educate white people about white supremacy, you know, and things like that. And I wanted to write a text that, as, as, as the Black feminist theorist uh, Terrion Williamson writes in her book, I Scandalize My Name in that chapter, Back to Living Again, that I wanted to write a text that took the lives and the worlds of Black people seriously. And anytime I do converse about white supremacy or about racism and things like that, I wanted to do it in such a way that James Baldwin did in The Fire Next Town when he's writing to his nephew. Even when Baldwin is talking about, this is what the world made my brother. Or this is what happened. It is always in the context of what Elizabeth Alexander calls the black interior or that space, that sacred holy space between black lives where we are beyond the litmus and the logics of whiteness. And so any type of conversation on white supremacy and racism or what white people did to me or does to us or does to the country is almost an invitation to look at the sacredness of our black lives and the way we converse with one another. And so that's where Baldwin, so much of Baldwin is so formative in my own understanding and my own approach to my own writing. And even in my own, in, in this book, Shouting in the Fire, you know, Shouting in the Fire, you know, so reminiscent of something, it's almost like an ode to Baldwin, you know, to the fire next time, or an American epistle is an ode to Baldwin in the ways in which Baldwin uses the epistolatory form to talk about the Black world, to talk about society, to talk about faith, to talk about embodiment. What does it mean to be embodied persons? And so when I think about much of Baldwin's literature, and I'm even thinking right now, uh, where Baldwin at, at the back end of In Search of a Majority in his text, Nobody Knows My Name, he writes, you know, the world is before you. You need not take it or leave it at, at the same way when you came in. And when I thought about my text and thought about Baldwin and even my own story, I didn't even want to take or leave my own story the same way I entered it. I didn't want to take that story or leave it in a way to write myself as the hero of the text so courageous, but much like that moment where I'm standing in, in a white church in a white pulpit where when my wife comes home and, and leaves me, I'm not there for her. There are one of the moments where you're like, wow, who have you become? And I was talking to my wife about this not too long ago and talking about my journals where so much of the writing was in some sense me stepping outside of my own story and becoming an investigative journalist doing archival research. So I keep a journal and have kept a journal from like 2014 to my journal and read what was I thinking like when I wrote about those four words from that time and things like that and so Baldwin helped me write an honest vulnerable story you know that did not make a hero of myself you know nor did not make too much of whiteness and white supremacy nor did not tell a heroic story of Black people, but an honest story in ways that were simply where people can walk away from this text and say, you know, Black people don't have to be perfect or in pain or in performance 
to be fully accepted as human and fully loved and free. And I, I attribute that to Baldwin, which my introduction to James Baldwin, ironically, was through a white brother named Joe Hall, who gave me Martin Luther King's book, Where Do We Go From Here? In that white church <laughs> or whatnot, where King quoted Baldwin and I ended up getting a fire next time during that time. And I tell people that, you know, if you know, you're black in a white space and you do an honest reading of the fire next time, there is no way you know, to stay there and be okay with many of the things that go on. And there is no way to not deal honestly with the ways that we fail and harm and need to get better and more mature as humans, as neighbors, and as Americans. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dante Stewart. He's a writer and speaker whose voice has been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, and numerous other publications. As an up-and-coming voice, he writes and speaks into the areas of race, religion, and politics. We're talking about his recent book, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dante Stewart. He's a writer and speaker whose voice has been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, and numerous other publications. He's an up-and-coming voice who writes and speaks into the areas of race, religion, and politics. We're talking about his recent book, Shoutin' in the Fire, an American Epistle. Well, I hope that this is not an inappropriate question, but I would really like to ask you to tell us about your mother, because your mama really is part of this book and shows up at all points in this book. So I'd just love to hear a little bit about your mother and how she raised you. Yeah, thank you for asking. Mom, you know, is one of the most amazing people in the world, as is my father. You know, uh, a lot of times, you know, it's so interesting. You know, I I grew up in a family where it was not perfect, you know, in, in many ways, but you know, just like so many others, you know, mothers and fathers played such critical roles or such distinct roles in our own formation. There are certain things that that now looking back on it at 29 years old, and if people didn't know I am 29, so many people think I'm older than I am, but I am 29 years old. At 29, I look back now that I'm a father of, of two beautiful children. And, you know, I can understand some of the things that maybe were confusing or hurtful or things like that in the past. But, you know, my mother is an amazing, beautiful black woman. You know, we talk all the time, literally before this, me and my mom was talking. We talk almost every other day, something like that and things like that. And so my mom, she's a baby of Margaret and Johnny Albert and who I write about in in my book, uh, my grandmother and my grandfather, two beautiful, amazing people as well. 
My mother is a baby of the 60s and baby of the Black church, as well as a baby of many of the Black arts, Black power movements that took place in the 1970s. And I'm reminded even right now, and as I, you know, oftentimes when I'm speaking, I'm trying to develop, you know, thoughts. I, I close my eyes so I can see images. And, and I remember this one distinct image that I may be right about in the next book. There's this image of my daddy caressing my mother's waist with his brown, hairy, big hands. And he's in his blue tight suit with his chest out. My mother uh, is in her slim black dress. Both of them have afros with jewelry on. She has this red lipstick and they are on on their way to like some type of gathering, some type of party. And I just think about this image and I want to get this image. I need to go back home so I can get this image and just keep it with me of my mother and my father when they were younger from the seventies. And I just think about just the beauty and the creativity and the love in their lives that marks so much of my childhood. And you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to write my mother, my father, my sister, my brothers, my cousins, my friends, my, my grandma and granddaddy in this book is reminiscent so much of what T.S.A. Lehman did in Heavy, what Imani Perry did in Breathe, what Jasmine Ward did in Memory Reaped, what Disha Filia did in, in, in The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, or what Robert Jones did in The Prophets. Or even, I'm thinking of things that, the ways that Jason Reynolds and, and Maurice Ruffin wrote about just the lives of Black folk and just the ways in which they humanize our stories without exceptionalizing us or making us, you know, in some sense, more heroic than we actually are. And as I think about my mother, you know, there, there were so many ways when my mother tried to help develop a certain type of consciousness within us as young children, whether she, you know, had books all around. They're, they're like literally, like I go back home and not too long ago, I was back home. And every time I go back home, I go into the dressers and things like that, because like my mom and them, they all, it's almost like a museum. Like it's full of like artifacts. I mean, that, my daddy got comics from like way back in the day. And I, you know, I'm sorry, daddy, if you listen to this, I did take them and they're at my house right now. So he don't know that. So my dad, my bad, they're at my house right now. And, and, and there's a journal article, a, a news article, newspaper article of that, that literally the day after John F. Kennedy died, it was a local newspaper that did a whole write-up of, on John F. Kennedy. There's a, a, a newspaper clipping from my granddaddy, Audrey Vault, who lived to be a hundred, I think it was like 123 years old and, and things like that. And so I go back and, and, and there's so much history there. As, as Sarah Brown writes about in her beautiful memoir, The Yellow House, when I think about my yellow house, there there's so many rooms that have so much history, has so much humanity and beauty. And my mom made sure that we knew as best we can who we were. She tried as best she can with what she had to make sure we knew our history, that we knew literacy and liberation were keys to our success. Well, as many Pentecostals say, you know, it was keys to our victory. And our breakthrough, literacy and liberation is, is what made us fully human that, you know, that there were ways where I felt like maybe, you know, too hard on us or it didn't let us be free enough and things like that. But I'm so grateful for the investment that my parents put in me because it it taught me so much of who I wanted to become. And, and I felt like as we opened with this idea of home, that like I wanted to return home to see what home had to stay for me. When I left the white church and, and so much of white social spaces, it was about trying to find home again. 
as Toni Morrison so beautifully writes about in Beloved, it was me trying to find a way to flesh and love this flesh. Because yonder, when I was around the white folk, yonder, they didn't love that flesh. You know, yonder, wherever your yonder is, whether it's in race, religion, gender, sexuality, we always have places where we're caught between the juxtaposition of the trauma of yonder and the triumph of home. And I was trying to figure out how to find my humanity and my liberation in the midst of all of that. And that means me going back home and, and writing, you know, my family into the story. But the danger also of that, my mama, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, my mama the other day was like, you know, I thought you sent me your book, me a PDF. I said, hey, ma, it's in your email somewhere. And I'm, that's awesome. I'm like, no, my mama keep asking me about this book. Like, what's she, what's, why she keep asking me about this book? Why I sent you this book? And, I, and my mama, one of those type of people, she want to make sure she read it before it get into the press. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, my, you know, if there's any places in my book, you know, I'm like, you know, if there's any places that you didn't like, you know, I'm just like, you know, those memories are mine. And I think this is, this is a part of writing memoir and the craft of writing memoir that I gained from just reading so many brilliant memoirs, such as Darnell Moore's joint, No Ashes in a Fire, or even later now, uh, reading Ashley Ford's joint, Somebody's Daughter, or even reading, you know, I, I know it may not be considered as a memoir, but essay collection, uh, but I think it's very memoir-ish. Uh, reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, where and as Elizabeth Alexander writes in her joint, The Black Interior, that these memories are mine and I write them. And whatever else beyond that, you know, I let people deal with that. But also, you know, knew that I needed to take care, as TSA talks about, you know, he, he always talks about this in his interviews that, you know, people ask questions about his family that, you know, makes him uncomfortable in a sense. And that's a part of it as well, that like I needed to do that, but I also needed to do that very carefully, thoughtfully and honest and vulnerable ways. But that also, you know, humanized my mama in ways that's like far beyond the ways that people talk about black women, especially when I talked about my mom and Alice Walker. So that was one of my favorite parts of my book, just talk about the color purple uh, and my mama being a nurse. So, yeah. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking to Dante Stewart. He's a writer and speaker whose voice has been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, and numerous other publications. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. One of the things that just rang out for me in the answer that you gave to that previous question was, and I, I wrote down the word indebtedness, and that's maybe not the right word, but it really rings out for me the gratitude that you have for the thinkers and the family that have given you so much. And you're constantly giving credit to all these others that are there like a cloud of witnesses with you. And I'm, I'm just so, I'm so struck by the generosity of saying, this is not just Dante Stewart saying this. The, these are ideas that have come from others that I'm filtering to you and giving a structure, but you need to look at these other places as well, and you need to know these other stories as well. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about generosity and indebtedness and the way that, that you are looking at a community that has done exactly this, named others and brought treasure into the, the common space and not hoarded it for themselves. Because I really, I'm feeling you sharing the treasure here, and I want to know more about that. Oh, yo, David, incredible question that I think many people should be thinking about and talking about, you know, not just simply in my book, but, but, but the gift of so many brilliant Black people writing books right now. So I'm thinking of, not too long ago, Fair Jasmine Griffin wrote this beautiful, beautiful, absolutely 
brilliant text. Read until you understand. And it came out the same day, you know, Honoré for Noam Jeffries, uh, the love songs of W.B. Du Bois came out as well as to Wanna Burst Unbound. If I'm not mistaken, they all came out around the same time earlier this month. And I think about these books that Black women and Black men, Black LGBTQ have wrote and given to the world, you know, as a gift of reflection and wisdom and faith and understanding and humanity. We have to talk about it as that. You use the right word, both in indebtedness as well as treasure. Those are really good ways of thinking about uh, Black life. I, I'm, I'm reminded of the Atlantic. They're, they're doing a series, and I think they, I think it's going on right now. It's entitled Inheritance, and it's on, you know, Black life in America. It's, it's a project about American history and Black life. And I think about the ways in which so much of these brilliant, beautiful writers have informed my own understanding as a writer, you know, when simply as a craft. First, as we think about craft, when you read my book, I want you to feel traditions of Black writing that has happened in history. I want you to feel James Baldwin. I want you to feel Toni Morrison. I want you to feel Alice Walker and June Jordan and many of the contemporary Black writers as when it comes to my approach, when it comes to my use of language, when it comes to my use of symbolism and plot and structure and metaphor. I want you to feel the fiction writing of Matteo, our writing Black book. I want you to feel the world building of N.K. Jameson. I want you to feel the kind of astute legal analysis of somebody like Derek Bell or Patricia Williams. I want you to feel the poetry of Jericho Brown and Denise Smith. I want you to feel these writers because I am a part of them. They're a part of me. I am who I am because they are who they are. And wherever I go, I take them with me. Yes. We may not be bloodline, but you know what? We can. They're family. And I think about this idea of inheritance, and I'm so reminded, you know, so much of the way I think about my own work, you know, I'm always going to be quoting other people because other people help me critically understand my own story and, and my own work. And I, and I return again and again to Elizabeth Alexander's book, The Black Interior, where, where she talks about the Black interior, that the sacred space between our lives, where we're beyond the litmus of whiteness and, and, and white imagination and, and white standards and, and things like that, where we can just simply, as Dear Jordan say, be Black alive and looking back at you. When I think about this kind of place of complex Black selves, real and enactable Black power, unfetishized Black beauty. And I think about so much of who I inherit, I have inherited and who informed my story. I say like, yo, like these are the people we need to be thinking about. This is the way we need to be thinking about Black life. We don't need to be thinking about Black life beyond it, but we need to be like realizing that the world we live in and the ways we live and move and have our being are worthy of critical engagement, are worthy of reception are worthy of listening to, to understand what it means to be human, what it means to be neighbor, what it means to be, you know, Americans. And that central relevant question, you know, is a part of my text. What does it mean to be Black and American and Christian? That is the crux of what I'm trying to figure out. And I don't 
I didn't necessarily have the answers or wanted to have answers for that, but I wanted to invite us and even myself into a sort of type of imagining, into a sort of type of wrestling, into a sort of type of storytelling where we lean on the narratives of the past, where we lean on the stories in the present so that we can think about the ways we want to dream and live and embody a world in the future. You know, with Toni Morrison talks about Black autobiography in her tenor lecture entitled The Sight of Memory, where she says that the act of imagination is bound up in memory. It's bound up in what we remember, what we inherit, what we treasure, what we pass on to one another, both the good and the bad. And that our job as storytellers, our job as Black writers is to ponder the actual of our lives and to imagine the possible. And when I think about the treasure and inheritance that I have received, you know, I want people to understand that as the famous Apostle Paul says in in the Bible, you know, I give unto you for what I have received. And he talks about the breakingness and the brokenness of the Lord's body and the story of, of this faith tradition that has brought us over. And for me, I want to say, I give you what I have received, the brokenness and the beauty of Black lives. Take, receive it, and do something better with it than many of us have received. Well, you mentioned a moment ago that lecture from Toni Morrison about memory, and I really, it, it was very striking. You know, you're talking about engaging these things critically. I really liked what you did with that because in the flow of that particular chapter, you picked up two concepts, if I'm remembering this, this correctly, the, the notion of flood and the notion of witness. And you reread her into what you were saying to us in a way that made me appreciate Morrison's lecture in a new way and see the pieces that you were building in a much clearer way. I really, to talk about indebtedness and really utilizing the treasures and the gifts that were there for you, you didn't just pick something up and say, hey, look at this and then set it back down again. You picked it up and you said, let me show you how this works. And maybe you didn't see it work this way. I was really pleased by that. But that leads me to want to ask in the the notion of memory about how you're thinking about this idea of flood and this idea of witness. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Well, flooding, that metaphor was really me trying to wrestle with what I felt when my granddaddy got lost, you know, and so my granddad, Johnny Albert, has dementia. And there's a story that I must tell whenever I tell him, talk to my granddaddy in, in, in response to him getting lost. You know, he's like, got, got out the hospital. Everything checks out well. And my granddaddy was lost for like 16 hours. And my granddaddy is mid upper 80s. You know, without his medication, lost for 16 hours, lost in, in the mucky and miry clay in South Carolina, where, where there are hogs and, and gators and, and, and snakes and moccasins and stuff like that. You know, this is some dangerous stuff. And I'll never forget when my granddaddy was sitting down, there's a picture I wrote about this in the article. But one article, there's a picture that I love. It's of me sitting down, you know, my all black and my granddaddy and Addison's my granddaddy has his hat off and he has his patches of gray on his hair and his legs are ashy and and he's sitting down with his frail but full body and I asked my granddaddy you know say you know because my granddaddy loved jazz I'm always younger you know he would always come over there he'd be playing you know his piano and and singing a song you know and all this tune I said granddaddy I said you still got your your dance moves 
daddy, you know, my granddaddy, just like my grandma, I got I have they, they decided to defend that you got a raspiness, you know, to their voice. And you can even hear it in, in my own voice, you know, it's sort of like, you know, a deep raspiness of, of the voice. And my granddaddy was like, oh, you say, oh, I don't, I don't know, you know, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm still here. And, you know, I, I think about, you know, that narrative and so much of flooding was about that. My granddaddy, if I, you know, can become a preacher for a second, you know, as I am, you know, my granddaddy, you know, would always repeat these stories over and over again and repeating stories of El Paso, Texas, repeating stories of military, his military service. And as many people know, you know, those who have dementia oftentimes repeat things from their earlier days and things like that. And, you know, oftentimes it gets frustrating, but then a thought hit me. I was talking to my mama one day. She said, you know, it's hard, but he's holding on to that part of himself that he remembers. And that the narrative of, of memory and, and witness and flooding when I think about, you know, Morrison and that side of memory, that the act of imagination is bound up in memory and that my granddaddy's story is so much like the story of black life is that we might have lost some things in the past. You know, things might have been taken away from us, but we're holding on to as best we can that which we remember. And I think when we hold on to the things that we remember, when we hold on to the things that we may not can change, but that make us human, when we hold on to the things that help us become better and more loving, I think that as Morrison is desiring for us and want for us, that we can become more loving, more healed, more whole, and more beautiful than we ever can imagine. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dante Stewart. He's a writer and speaker whose voice has been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Sojourners, and a number of other publications. We're talking today about his recent book, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dante Stewart. He's a writer and speaker whose voice has been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Sojourners, and numerous other publications. He's an up-and-coming voice who writes and speaks into the areas of race, religion, and politics. Today we're talking about his recent book, Shoutin' in the Fire, an American Epistle. I want to go back to an image that you gave us earlier in the conversation. Your father and mother are getting ready to go out for a special occasion. They're both wearing their good clothes that your mother's made up, and your father's hand is on your mother's waist. The thing that rang out to me as you told us about that image, the word that came to my mind was joy. And, oh, yeah. And what I really... What really struck me about your book, Shouting in the Fire, was in this process of you finding your own voice and you running from and running to these different communities that had shaped you in various ways, the thing that I kept coming back to is this image of enjoyment, joy, just living life without having to prove yourself or justify yourself to the structures of power that are coded as whiteness in our culture right now. Mm -hmm. And so I want to ask you about joy that has nothing to do with people like me. What is joy Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. What is joy in a way that is simply pure and of itself, enjoying itself for itself? Tell me about joy. Yeah. Yeah. It's that last chapter, bro. It's that last chapter, bro. It's the way. And, you know, I was very particular about the way that I wrote this book. You know, what was so funny about my writing process is, uh, and not, it may be funny to some people, it may not be funny, but like, you know, by the end of my book, I'll never forget this. I was in a hotel, in my hotel, and I'm writing, writing. And then I text my editor. I said, Ashley, I think I'm done. You know, I see, I see, because I actually was interesting about this book is I actually had another chapter that I was going to write, but then I just, I didn't, it was called Salvation. But then I, we just like kind of got, it was like, you know, kind of got rid of them. We, we had, there were really good areas and, and, and avenues and windows in, the, in that chapter that some that we took and we collapsed in the other chapters so they worked better. And shout out to my editor, Ashley, who is the best in the game, at least to me. Oh, what not? You know, editors don't get enough love. So I got to shout Ashley out for just her brilliant ways of thinking about my words and just her care, you know, for the type of writing I was trying to do. And so we took out that chapter. And when I was descending in my text, you know, I was like, that just those few weeks I was writing, I was reading the last two chapters of every single Jasmine Ward book. Where the line bleeds, seeing unburied sing, men we read, salvage the bones. Even her chap- her her chapter in her joint, the fire this time, which is a beautiful essay collection. Which I I tell everybody, you know, you got to read that joint. That joint was amazing. I mean, it gave you poetry, gave you prose, it gave you theology, it gave you everything. And it it, it was it's just a really good joint that just includes so many brilliant black voices. And you know, I was reading. Everything Jasmine wrote, because I believe, I truly believe this, that I don't think we have anybody living today, you know, that can close a book like Jasmine Ward. Like, she just does the best job at closing books. And the way she closed Sing and Bird Sing was home, the word home. She says home. And I'm, t- you know, when I finished that book, y'all was in tears, breath. Like, yo, so if Jasmine Moore ever, you know, listens to this interview, I want to tell Jasmine that I am so inspired by you. I want to give you a hug and tell you that, you know, every single last book you wrote, every book you wrote, every last chapter had me in tears somehow. And I wanted to close breath like that. I wanted by the time people got done with breath that, you know, they were able to say we black people are not perfect. We struggle, we fail, we harm, but we're human. And we're worthy of the deepest love any and all of us have to offer. And you know, when I ended the joint with, I cried, I cried because I knew that was the meaning. The hope was in the struggles. God was in the hope. And these bodies were not always suffering. These bodies were not always tremble. These bodies will live. I saw beautiful black bodies. And, you know, so much of the way people think about black life is that oftentimes we have to be dead in order to be celebrated and cherished. It's like in 2020, coming out of 2020, so many people in response to George Floyd and in lack of response to those like Breonna Taylor and even in some sense, Micaiah Bryant. 
and the ways in which people say, you know, you know, she shouldn't have had this. She shouldn't have been doing this. She shouldn't have been doing that. If she would have been doing this, she would have been alive. And so many people's idea of black life is that we have to be perfect in ways, you know, where people are imperfect and stay alive and get celebrated. But our imperfections must be met with the most vileless and vigorous type of punishment. And I wanted to say that we must see beauty and not a certain type of beauty, you know, that is triumphalistic. Cause like that's section when I talk about Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, where we're where about the dream breakers and the ways in which I gave up hope in order to find it again. I didn't want people to walk away from my book and say, you know, oh man, I'm hopeful. This is not a hopeful book, <laughs> you know, in a sense of like many of our conceptions of hope as hope as, you know, triumphalism, you know, things going to get better. Or even if we're thinking about many of us religious people, I, you know, you just pray about it. You know, the gospel fixes everything. God going to make everything okay in the future. You know, I wanted to say, you know, why do black people have to wait for heaven to live our best life? You know, we should not have to wait for rewards and glory when we should experience goodness on earth. And I wanted to figure out a way to write that type of goodness. As Tony, I, I love Tony Morrison. You know, they did a joint Tony Morrison at, at Harvard Divinity School. And they're talking about the spiritual vision of, of Tony Morrison. And she talked about, she had a section where she was talking about goodness and the goodness of black life. And I said, you know, I wanted to say that is where I find the joy, right where I started. Terror, rage, wounds, country roads, beat up cars, floods, pieces, dreaming, America, us. I saw all of us alive, breathing, here. We are exhausted indeed, but we catch our breath again. And I think that is where I found the joy. And that is the type of joy that I wanted to write. My June Jordan, my favorite poet, she says, I am black and love and looking back at you. And I think by the time people get to the end, they will have found that joy. And that joy is us being alive and in love, free, imperfect, ordinarily powerful, beautiful messes that we are, but beautiful, beautiful, as the dear Hartman says, beautiful experiments. You, you mentioned a moment ago, as you were talking about joy, in passing, you talked about rage. And one of the things that you deal with in your book, Shouting in the Fire, is you talk about two different kinds of rage. You contrast white rage, which leads to violence and trying to, to create a world where whiteness has power. And you contrast mm -hmm. that with black rage. And there's a connection between black rage and the joy that you're talking about. But I think mm -hmm. probably a lot of listeners in my audience may never have encountered this idea of black rage that's different from white rage. And I'd love to hear a little bit about mm -hmm. black rage, but then connect that in, in some ways to the joy mm -hmm. that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I say, you know, when I was thinking about rage, I mean, a lot of times when people think about rage in, in some sense, and this was this for me, and it's much love to one of the beloved Emory professors, Kara Anderson, who wrote that incredible book, White Rage, or whatnot, that, that, that is just a stellar book. And so much of her thoughts on white rage informed, you know, my understandings of white rage and the ways in which oftentimes we make moral equivalencies of the ways in which, you know, white people are angry and black people are angry. 
And when I think about, and this may be reductionistic to history and things like that, and, you know, there's many people here that criticize it, and I will accept those criticisms. But and when I look at history, many of the traditions of white people being angry, the re-entrenchment, as Kimberly Crenshaw writes about, of white power structures and dominance. But when I think about Black people being angry and our anger coming out of this incredible belief in our own dignity and our, our own right to live, I think about our dignity not as a sense of dominance, but as a way, as Fanon says, as I talk about, you know, where we're, where our living is our revolt in a country that has, our, has its foot on our necks. I want to create a tension, though, that, that I don't, I did not want to write about anger, Black anger, as, you know, we're angry, but then like, you know, then some, at some point our anger is going to subside and then we're going to forgive. You know, sometimes our anger leads us to Matt Turner. And that for me, that's okay. You know, that may not be okay for other people, but philosophically, you know, and morally, I can live in the tension of your moral framework and dilemma is much different when you are forced into a situation of slavery and enslavement. That more framework, you know, has to be different. That type of reasoning, you know, can't just be, you know, Henry, you know, Matt Turner is wrong. But when these people, when Americans, you know, feel like a certain demographic upset at our own ideals of our own place in the world, then we have a right to invade their country and we have a God-given right. And so I wanted to critically examine that framework where many people take for granted the ways in which who can be enraged and who can be not, whose rage is, do we believe to be justified? But I'm so, you know, I wanted to put a deal, I wanted to do some kind of theological work in thinking about rage because I think, you know, the Bible in its complexity, you know, allows for tension to, it allows for that, the, the tension of being enraged without losing your humanity or the humanity of others in the process. And I want to wrestle with the question, as Dr. Anderson wrestled, why are white people so enraged? And how do white people answer the question of their own rage and things like that? And so I was uh, searching online the other day and I came across this interesting post where this person was saying that too often, you know, slavery is taught as the history of black people and not as the history of white people. And I think that is what we need to think about rage is that, you know, you need to think about rage as the history of white rage, you know, and what I was trying to accomplish is to speak in the intimate places where we are angry and we need a word. So in some ways, my talking about rage was talking about rage, you know, as a theologian, but also in some sense as a pastoral voice to offer ways of embracing our anger in ways that does not have to diminish our humanity and our terrible right to live. You know, so I wanted to distinguish, you know, white rage and black rage and to think about it, you know, as a virtue and as something life-giving, you know, the ways in which I read about Nehemiah's story in the Bible, when Nehemiah comes and he sees what's happening and he says, as I'm someone who deals with the text and his, and his language, is he, he was angry and that, and that he was worried is it has the similar connotation of Rage where the fullness of his emotion and the fullness of his personality and the fullness of his energy was given to being angry with the situation that those who look like him were forced to be in. 
And that situation was where they were second-class citizens. Their bodies and their labor and their creativity was exploited. And they were forced to live in a situation of given injustice and disrespect. And that to deal with that situation, one must be angry. And that my anger must have the capacity to be able to speak because I am human. And because that anger has the ability to set somebody else free. So I'm reminded of Audre Lorde's incredible, incredible essay in Sister Outsider. I think it was entitled The Use of Anger, if I'm not mistaken. And she talks about our anger has the capacity. She was talking about women responding to racism. You know, but that anger is a response to these like these racist attitudes, but also, you know, anger reminds us that we are human and that our humanity must be free and must live and must have expression to be fully embraced. And, you know, I I want to play with the idea of rage and and allow it to become a part of our language. In similar ways that Audre Lorde wrote about it in her joint, The Sister Sister Outsider, I just wanted to think more, in some sense, try and think theologically about it as well, because many Christians don't like the language of angry, when anger, you know, is as much a life-giving force in in, in the biblical witness as is faith or love. So I'm aware that your entire book, the background of that book, shouting in the fire, there's a resonance of Christianity. You grew up in a certain type of Christianity. You fled from that Christianity into white Christianity, and now you've re-embraced a a different style of Christianity moving forward. And it leads me to ask the question, if you were to stop right now, Dante Stewart, and say, this is the gospel, this is the good news, and you were to put it into a statement— What's the gospel? What's the gospel that America needs to hear right now? What's the good news that needs to be proclaimed that will really be the gospel? Yeah, wow. Great question. Well, you know, back to June Jordan. I am black alive and looking back at you. So much of my understanding of the good news of Jesus. If if we're honest biblical readers, we would say that's so much of the good news that Jesus brought to various demographics or social locations was depended on what kind of experience that particular person was dealing with. And so the woman with the issue of blood, her good news was that you were healed. The man whose son was dealing with demonic overtaking him, you know, his good news was, okay, that, that demon is now gone. Those who were left out by the religious and political community, you know, Jesus, good news to them was the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to set free the captives, to preach liberation to the oppressed and to proclaim the good news of the year of the Lord's favor. And so for me, as somebody who's black in this country, I want to think about the good news from the standpoint of what is the good news for us as black people? That's the good news for them. And I know that many traditions of Christian faith I oftentimes think about objectivity and and there is some type of good news that's outside of all of us. And, you know, I'll leave that to I'll leave that to them to argue about. That ain't my fight to fight. But I have someone who's in school right now and doing trying to do as best theological thinking as I can. You know, my good news in this moment that I want to preach is just like in some sense, you know, what Jesus says in John 10, 10, that the, the enemy comes to steal 
to kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly or some other versions say life in its full capacity or in its fullness. And so for me, the critical theological question for me is what does it mean to be black alive and looking back at you as it relates to John 10, 10. And that for me is my good news. And that, that for me is what I want to bring. I want to say that, you know, I don't just simply read black literature and black life as great pieces of literature. But as James Baldwin does in the back end of The Fire Next Time, I want to read it as sacred text. I want to read our lives as sacred history, as, as something to tell us about the work of God in our lives, has something to tell us about embodying the better story than many of the stories that we inherit and offer to one another, that has something to tell us about the world that we can imagine possible for ourselves, and has something to tell us about what can be held out for our country and for what we want to leave for our children. And that, for me, is good enough news for me and the type of news that I want to work at telling again and again through my preaching, through my living, through my love of my family and my friends and my neighbors, through my writing, through my presence. That's the good news. It's June Jordan. I am Black Alive and looking back at you. Well, Dante Stewart, as part of my preparations for these interviews, I read books, but I read them really fast. And I just want to say that your book, Shouting in the Fire, is a book that now that I've read it once fast, I want to go back and read it slow because I learned so much from it and I want to keep learning from it. It is just an amazing work and one that I think a lot of my listeners need to hear and engage with, and some of them just need to sit down and look in the mirror of it. Please keep Mm -hmm. writing and please keep coming back and talking to us because I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so grateful you took the time to write your book, Shouting in the Fire, but I'm especially grateful you took the time today to talk to us about it. Oh, Dan, I'm grateful to be here, Brother David. It's been a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Dante Stewart. He's a writer and speaker whose voice has been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, Sojourners, Christianity Today, and numerous other publications. He's an up-and-coming voice and writes and speaks in the areas of race, religion, and politics. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.